Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, it's been almost a month since Idaho legislators returned to the State House for a one-day special session. You know the details about what lawmakers pass on September 1st. So let's just recap them really quickly. $500 million in one-time tax relief, $150 million in ongoing income tax relief, and $330 million of new funding for K-12 and $80 million of new money for an in-demand careers fund in education. So now it's going to be up to the 2023 legislature to figure out exactly how that education money is spent in the backdrop of what could be an economic downturn or even a recession. To break down all of this, I had a chance to uh, talk to Wendy Horman, Representative Wendy Horman, a Republican from Idaho Falls, a key member of the Budget Writing Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, to talk about where we go from here. Here's our conversation from this week. Well, Representative Horman, thanks for joining us as, as always on the podcast. I've wanted to have you on to talk about September 1st and the special session and what happens now. So let's start on September 1st. You ultimately, you voted for House Bill 1 for the tax cuts and the education spending increases. What was, was there a factor that swung your decision? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me, Kevin. It's great to be here to talk about this. It's certainly been talked about a lot since September 1st. Yes. Um, So one of the factors that influenced me was uh, the state invested just shy of $260 million in the 2022 session already for the upcoming school year. So uh, 330 isn't that different from 260. I mean, there is some difference. But when you consider some of the big things that uh, some of us, uh, I'll I'll use myself, have wanted to do for many years, such as a new public school funding formula, those things take significant investments. And so uh, I I ultimately, yes, supported, supported House Bill 1. I suppose the biggest difference here isn't so much the dollars that we're talking about, because yes, if we're sitting on a $1.9 billion surplus, a lot of that money was going to go into K-12 just organically. What's different here is that House Bill 1 really sets up a, a dedicated funding source. There's going to be $330 million for K-12 in perpetuity coming from the sales tax. Correct. And uh, that money... Uh has been, I believe, transferred already into the public school income fund, which for lack of a better word, is essentially the checking account for public schools. We we transfer all the new general funds into that account and then they're spent from there. Now, that's not to say that they can't be transferred out to other accounts, but uh, it, it's in there for now and and it's prompted a lot of innovative thinking from people for some reason to have a, a known amount that we're going to spend. Again, I don't think it would have been that different, all that different from what we would have invested anyway during the upcoming session. And the sheer mechanics of it, it's a known amount, it's $330 million for K-12, but it's not a standalone $330 million. It's in the, it's in the mix with all of the other K-12 dollars that you're going to appropriate at the state level. Correct, correct. And we know that just 
uh, to maintain the current education budget that we passed last year, which as I mentioned had uh, about 260 million new dollars in it. We know that we need 56 million of that 330 uh, right off the top just to maintain current levels of spending. And so that, that factors into how much will be left for other purposes. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the wish list because you have a wish list. <laughs> there are going to be 105 legislators with, with their own wish list, and, and not to mention education leaders, education groups, uh, stakeholders. Something that has been high on your wish list for a long time is shifting the funding formula to something that's more of an enrollment-based formula. Is this a year that that happens uh, permanently? Well, my wish list has been to shift to a student-based formula. Mm -hmm. So right now, Idaho has one of the few remaining formulas in the nation. I think we're under five now because Tennessee just changed theirs to a student-based formula. So in other words, the money goes out based on the needs of and numbers of students in the system. Right now, Idaho is one of the most prescriptive in the nation. Um, in other words, we can tell you how many people you can hire uh, and you know, uh, lot, class size, lots of different things. And, and if, you, if you hire or um, make your class sizes different than what the state uh, pays for, you have to figure out how to pay for that. And so it's just very bossy if you will. And having been on a school board for 11 years prior to serving in the legislature, I believe people at the local level are best equipped to make the decisions of how to spend the money uh, without so many strings attached from the state. And frankly, if we move to a, a, a school funding formula that has a lot more flexibility and transparency at the local level, it solves a lot of these other wish lists um, that, and I have loved hearing from people. I have heard from everyone from legislators to citizens about their ideas for how these funds should be spent. And I, I love it. That's been a positive outcome, I believe, from the special session. Uh, we, uh, so if we do invest in a, uh, a school funding formula, you essentially solve for a lot of the wish lists at the local level, because maybe what your district needs is more money for classified staff or bus drivers, but maybe what your district needs is more money for health insurance or facilities, right? A big investment at the top allows those local, those decisions to be made at the local level and gives districts and charters the ability to prioritize and and spend it on those funds if it comes with no strings from the state. Right. So it really would address a lot of the items that uh, Superintendent Ibarra put in her budget request, which predated the special session, it's worth noting. But a lot of what she talked about in her budget request was more money for teacher pay, more money for classified salaries, and more money for employee benefits. You feel like a new funding formula gets you a good chunk of the way there. Absolutely. And, and the decisions in the hands of the people who know best what the district needs. I do want to caution that we have we have a lot of water under the bridge to get to before uh, the second week of January when sessions start. We have a general election that's coming up that could affect the balance of power 
in the House and Senate chambers, which uh, thereby could impact the balance or the counts of Republicans and Democrats on JFAC, the Joint Finance and Appropriation Committee, as well as House and Senate Education Committees. We have the advisory vote. Uh, we don't know who's going to be on those committees and who will be chairing those committees. Mm -hmm. And so there, there are a lot of uh, variables still in play that will impact these decisions significantly. And just to recap it for listeners, because these numbers are committed to your memory, at least 11 new members of JFAC out of the 20 members, two new co-chairs, two new vice chairs, a new chairman, chairperson, I should say, in the Senate Education Committee, several new members there. Uh, inevitably, you'll have a good deal of turnover in House Education Committee, at least a new vice chair. Uh, so a lot of new new players. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I've always, I came in with a very large freshman class. I think it was the largest in Idaho history right, in 2012. This one is slightly larger. But I've always been a fan of new eyes on old problems. And so I, I look forward to continuing to learn what their priorities are and uh, see where this money goes. Let's talk about a couple of those old problems from the context of the new money. Um, school facilities. Even before this special session, I was struck by the education groups, the stakeholder groups, all saying that as the surplus was growing, that this is a a time where the state should put money into facilities, additional money into facilities. Do you feel like this is a, a time for that to happen? I mean, it's obviously been a very touchy political issue. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there are some in the camp that think the state should just pay for all school facilities. Uh, I remind them that what the state funds, the state can control. So if you want a bunch of cookie cutter, identical school buildings all over the state of Idaho, where uh, communities have no say in what those buildings, how those buildings are designed and what they look like, uh, then we can, we can have that conversation. Uh, most states require local property tax contributions for the operational costs of schools. Idaho does not. Idaho fills the cup first, and then if communities decide to vote for additional funds, they hold an election in most cases. There are some exceptions, Boise being the big exception there. Um, but so, we need to have that conversation about if, if the state pays for everything, the state can, you know, could potentially control everything. And, and I don't think that's a good balance. Uh, local control matters to me. Community and parent voice matters to me. I do think we have some really valid options of investing in revolving loan funds so that we could invest one time and districts and, and charters could access those funds uh, for building facilities as loans that would then be paid back to the fund and reused. So I think that would be a tremendous way to invest in facilities. We could also talk about, you know, tweaking the bond levy equalization formula. But right now, that's that's a pretty balanced formula. It it takes into consideration, you know. Uh, income 
levels, the per capita uh, and unemployment levels at the uh, county level, and then the district market value. So um, as with the funding formula, there are winners under our current overall funding formula. Um, and sometimes the losers pay for those winners to get that additional money. And a recent analysis showed that the wealthier uh, a district is, the more property value and income, the more money they get under the current funding formula. So, you know, we can talk about tweaks to that, but almost every district, not charters, but almost every district qualifies for bond levy equalization funding uh, after they pass a bond. And that's, you know, that's difficult for some districts to do. And it's really interesting in the big picture what you're talking about here, Representative, because a few minutes ago you were talking about the overall funding formula and you used the word bossy. And I think there are probably school administrators who'd use a saltier <laughs> term to describe the funding formula. But what you're suggesting is that if you're, yeah, it would not, if you're not careful, you could create a facilities formula or a facilities strategy that could be, that could be bossy as well. Very bossy, very bossy. Um, because if you're going to have the state do it, and I've heard this from a number of my colleagues, uh, it would just be cook, cookie cutter plants, and you would pick from three or four, and and that would be your school. Yeah, that's how you get economies of scale. You you use kind of these generic designs. Yes, yeah, and and like I said, I think there are better approaches to that because I do think that community and parent voice is really crucial to uh, the whole process of education, including facilities. How does school choice enter into the the wish list? Because that's something you've been pushing for uh, pre-special pre, uh, session, but now moving into you know the 2023 session. Do you think that this is a year where you, where the legislature will uh, move more money into school choice, uh, like a scholarship uh, proposal that you've had before? I, I hope so. Uh, we know there is a tremendous need out there from Governor Little's Strong Family, Strong Students plan, where $50 million uh, disappeared pretty quickly to families making less than 75000 in the state of Idaho. We know there's a tremendous need to support both public and non-public school students. And, and if so the applications the, for this new round of grants is any indication that the new $50 million is going to go pretty quickly, too. I agree. I think the last numbers I saw were up over 14000 Yeah, it's, it's pretty, um, pretty remarkable, it, the response. It, it is. And, you know, we can get... With $50 million, you could have 50,000 students apply. It, it gets a little, uh, you can get up to 3,000 a family. So it's possible that it could go to families who have more than three children, um, but they would only get the, the 3,000 as it's written right now. But we did fund that program in this session with 50 million of one-time federal COVID relief dollars. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to see you know, ongoing funds put into uh, whatever does come out as the uh, the school choice bill. There's a lot of people who have a lot of different ideas. And again, I think that's great, just like I do with the general conversation to prompt innovative thinking about how can we help students um, and how can we help teachers? The career ladder is a good example of investing, oh my goodness, 
millions and millions of dollars, I think 345 million in just salaries, not benefits over since 2016. And I was there, it, we were promised this would, you know, make a dent in recruitment and retention. And it really hasn't. I mean, we have fluctuated a percent to a percent and a half um, since 2016, but it's it it's virtually unchanged. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's good to get people thinking differently about whether it's in the school choice realm or or generally about how can we use these funds in ways that will change outcomes, whether that's teacher retention, student academic performance behavioral issues, you know, and again, this comes back to local control, letting the locals decide where to make that investment under a student-based funding formula. Right. And and again, and it goes back to, you know, a lot of, you know, new faces, a lot of new players, uh, you know, playing a role in what this may look like. I mean, we've talked about the changes in the legislature, but obviously we'll have a new state superintendent regardless of what happens in November. So, yeah. A, a lot's going to change. Uh, and a lot is changing now. We've, we've seen enrollment declines, for example. We know the rate is declining. Now, Idaho is declining slower than uh, most other states, but decline is still the operative word. Mm-hmm. And so we need to make sure we have funding strategies in place that uh, will invest in the the students wherever they're going to school and or being homeschooled in fact i i i think a child is a child is a child whether they're in the public system a private system they're being homeschooled they're all idaho's children and i believe they deserve our support and i believe that idaho will be better off as we support children wherever they're learning. So as we, we had a lot of changes during the pandemic to how children were educated. And I think a lot of those things were good for some students, very difficult other students. Some students just can't adapt to an online setting or they don't have the support at home to help them be successful in that environment. So I think we embrace what worked, fund it and, and move ahead. But there's a lot of work to find out. I'm a huge fan of Moneyball, the book. I haven't actually seen the movie. Oh, yeah. But, right? In, investing in what works. Well, first of all, you have to take two hours and watch Moneyball, the movie. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's a great baseball movie, but it's a great organizational theory movie. But anyway, uh, people didn't tune in for a uh, for movie reviews from, from Kevin, but uh, I had to throw that in. <laughs> Let's shift gears to another piece of this whole funding uh, equation from September 1st. Uh, the $80 million for the in-demand careers fund. Do you have a better sense at this point of what that might look like and how that might be structured and what it might fund? And So what do you know at this point and what do you need to know at this point? <laughs> what I know at this point is that section of code was placed in the scholarship area of the law. And so there are, I've heard from a lot of folks in higher education, um, even students, uh, certainly my colleagues have ideas as well about those funds. Uh, 
but I would just remind people that that section of code is in the scholarship section. And so how that plays out and what that looks like uh, remains to be seen, but I don't think it was an accident that uh, Governor Little chose to place it there. I, I know of his commitment to Idaho students. And, you know, we've struggled with previous investments. It seems like the more we invest in higher education, uh, we have a negative correlation right now between investments. I mean, in 2000, <clears throat> excuse me, 2016-17 school year, we, we were at 50% uh, of students immediately enrolling in college in the 2021 school year, which, you know, it was COVID, but we're down to 37, but we have gone progressively down. You guys have covered that there at Ed News uh, very well. We've gone 50, 48, 46, 39, 37. We'll see what this year brings. But so I think we need to have conversations about this money ball idea, right? Mm -hmm. We're investing in ways that help students go on, that help them get jobs, uh, maybe they just want an industry credential or certificate. Yeah, and, I was going to say, maybe, maybe, maybe this emerges more as a scholarship program or partially as a scholarship program that's more geared towards uh, a career technical education as opposed to two or four year college. Uh, you know, I think I think there will be investments that support all of the things you just mentioned. That would that's my suspicion. Uh, Eighty million dollars is a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, we had a request last year for workforce development funds, which is different, but similar. Um, and uh, the legislature just wasn't convinced that we could spend 50 million in a year. So we appropriated 25. And so $80 million is a lot of money. And my concern remains that the cost of a college education has become prohibitive to too many Idaho students. And so, yes, let's have conversations about how to help them go on in a way, whether that's a certificate, a trade school, a community college, or uh, a university that will make them be able to be gainfully employed at the end with uh, jobs that have strong wages. So, I, yeah, I think there will be a lot of conversation around those ideas. Let me wrap this up by asking you to kind of revisit some of what you said on the House floor on September 1st. You, you talked about how much money there is in education to track right now, you know, the money that was approved on September 1st. But on top of that, this federal COVID relief funding for education, most of which, as you pointed out, is still yet to be spent. Uh, districts have a couple of years to spend it. They're working their way through spending it. How do you follow those dollars? How should the legislature follow those dollars and define success in terms of spending the money smartly? That is that is a great question. Uh, personally, I get online every month or so and check to see what the latest update is. I was doing, I was scrambling to do that on the House floor. I hadn't planned to debate, but some of the rhetoric that came out uh, I felt needed uh, a response and a response with some data. And uh, that's 
was the most recent time I checked. And, and it's interesting that we appropriated $330 million, but of the ESSER three funds, which is just a chunk of the billion dollars schools have had access right. to, um, $345 million of that remained unspent. So districts have a lot of cash and we haven't even gotten into their reserve accounts yet, which I think your team usually does a really good analysis uh, every year. We, we don't know what those numbers are uh, for the current school year, but it's it also, I believe, will be over $300 million. And so there's a lot of cash out there. What I hope uh, has not happened is that they have been invested in ongoing expenses uh, so that districts will have created a funding cliff for themselves. Mm -hmm. One-time funds should be spent on one-time uses. And maybe that's stipends or maybe that's temporary positions. But uh, that remains to be seen, and it's hard. It's hard to find out exactly how districts have spent those funds outside of just individual conversations with districts. And, and especially so, when we're we're talking about this federal COVID funding, which came with not a lot of strings attached. I mean, there was a lot of flexibility, you know, in the language in terms of you can spend on pretty much anything that is, you know that is you know but for COVID this could have had this happened yeah. because of COVID or could yeah. be traced the, all of the above basically exactly. you could drive a school bus through that last one on the list which was anything that has impacted your operations yeah uh, so yes lots of conversations lots of tracking uh, LSO our legislative service office budget staff has had to pick up a lot of additional work uh, we do have a list of federal expenditures in our legislative budget book that we refer to, but this has been a ton of different money and different funding streams that we've had to quickly adapt and figure out how to track. But ultimately, uh, policymakers and citizens will be able to see that on transparentidaho.gov, um, but a lot of questions at this point still. And too early, really, to answer all of these questions or really any of these questions. But uh, it's it's great to kind of get a sense of how this might all play out. Representative, as always, I appreciate your time and your insights. Great to chat. Thanks, Kevin. Again, that was State Representative Wendy Horman. She is a Republican from Idaho Falls and a member of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee. A lot of news to catch up on this week at our website at idahoednews.org. Let's uh, just talk about a couple of those items. Carly Flandro takes an in-depth look, uh, four stories focusing in on the teacher evaluations process. Now, we've written a lot about evaluations in the past, some of the inconsistencies in the process, and how this uh, process is tied to teacher salaries. Carly takes a really close look at the process, talking to administrators, talking to teachers, talking about some of the flaws in the system and things that administrators would hope to see changed in the future. The University of Idaho has made national headlines this week. It all stems from a memo that went out to university staff regarding Idaho's new anti-abortion law. Our friends at Idaho Capital Sun have been following this issue closely. Kelsey Mosley-Morris has been writing about this for the Capital Sun, and we've been uh, publishing their stories. Check those out at idahoidnews.org. 
And I take a closer look at the Empowering Parents Project. Now, this is the uh, grant program that was passed this legislative session that will allow parents to receive grants to cover home educational expenses. The whole process of executing this $50 million contract falls to a relatively new vendor, which will receive close to $1.5 million to operate this project. They were not the low bidder in the uh, bidding process. We explain how this company got the contract and how this company is expecting to, uh, to carry out the project. I have that story. We published it on Thursday. You can check that one out and all of our stories at idahoednews.org. Follow us daily for the latest news in education policy and education politics. Follow us on Twitter at Idaho Ed News. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on any breaking items. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And come back next week for another edition of the podcast. And also check out Carly Flandro's new podcast, The Teacher's Lounge. A new edition of that podcast uh, dropped this week as well. Until next week, I'm Kevin Richard. Take care.